Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And joining us today is Heather Boucher, who is an American economist and member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. This is a very big topic and we want to give it lots of space. So let's just dive right into our interview with Heather. Heather Boucher is an American economist and member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Heather was the president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and also worked as an economist at the Center for American Progress and the United States Congress Joint Economic Committee. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. To set the tale for our conversation, can you give us an overview of the current state of the U.S. economy? Well, the U.S. economy remains in an incredibly challenging position, right? We've seen this past year with the pandemic, with so many folks who've been unable to go to work because the the businesses were closed or it was unsafe. And while we've made progress in bringing some of those jobs back, we certainly are not all the way there. And indeed, when we got the data for the last few months of job gains, What we saw is that over the last three months, we'd only created about 29,000 jobs on average. Whereas in the prior three months, we created nearly a million jobs on average. And I start there because I think that's just indicative of the fact that, you know, we brought a lot of jobs back over the summer and fall, but that's sort of stalled. So we've stalled out at this pretty bad level with millions of folks, um, you know, tens of millions of folks out of work and, um, and really struggling right now. So now I don't want to be too grim, right? Because the good news is, is that we're getting our wrapping our arms around this pandemic, we're getting shots in arms, we're, you know, making a lot of progress there. But um, because the scope, the, because the trajectory of the virus is still uncertain, we need to be very careful. And given where the economy is, I would say it's in a very fragile state. I think that's right. And we all were there in 2009 when then Vice President Biden helped shepherd through the National Recovery Act. And now over a decade later, he's working through the American Rescue Plan. And that language alone is really powerful. Can you give us a little bit of background on the title and what it means for the everyday American? That's great. And making those parallels, you know, it is so important that this is called the American Rescue Plan, because at this point in this economy, that is what we're trying to do, right? So this plan was built from the ground up. It was built by focusing on what is the actual challenge facing the American people, the American economy, and what do we need to do about it? And so it starts with a series of investments to contain the virus, And to do things like, you know, what is it that we need to do? What do states and localities need in order to get schools open safely? It's a conversation that we're hearing all around us right now. But one thing we know is if you want more kids to socially distance and you want teachers to both doing in-class teaching and video teaching at the same time, that's going to cost money. It requires resources. So the first part is giving communities the resources they need, um, you know, and so that they also have things like protective gear and all the like, and that there's community health centers that are giving vaccines. Okay, so that's part one. But then while we do that, while we contain the virus, we need to make sure that we support those businesses, those families, those communities that just can't do their jobs right now as normal. 
And so there's money for the unemployed. There's direct checks to give American families a little bit of a cushion in, this, in their hour of need. There's mm -hmm. money to help childcare centers reopen. There's money for emergency paid leave so that businesses can afford to let people stay home when they're sick, right? We know that this is one of the most important policies in a pandemic, let the sick, pe sick people stay home. Um, and there's money for states and localities to deal with all the challenges that they're facing. So this is a rescue package. It's designed to provide relief um, to our economy while we contain the virus. So I, I love to kind of go a little farther on that because I was on Fox News this morning before uh, we recorded, and already there's all this disinformation, right, about this plan. They're saying that that this doesn't require schools to be open. How are we going to get schools open? They're saying, you know, that there's all these pork projects and that it's not as targeted enough. Can you help us understand a little bit about that disinformation? Because it actually is investments in infrastructure and it's all COVID. Is that right? A hundred percent. I get my notes out here and quote you with these things. Please this is, do. This is incredible. You know, on a week where we are talking about a half a million Americans have died yeah. from COVID. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many teachers in America who aren't young, right? They might be in higher risk groups. We need to make sure that those teachers are safe and those kids are safe, right? So we need to make sure that those schools have the money to make sure that every single one of those teachers who needs it has that protective gear and that we can make sure to get those vaccines out to them as quickly as possible as their turn comes along. You know, states and cities are making the exact timing decisions, but that requires resources and coordination. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the American Rescue Plan has about $170 billion to help schools and higher education reopen. All of that money is targeted on the actual urgent problem in front of us. Let me give you a second area that is extremely well targeted. Um, the plan has money to help the unemployed. Well, here's the thing, last week, was the 48th week where the United States saw a record number of people apply for unemployment benefits. For me, that is the kind of number that like brings tears to my eyes because mm -hmm. this, is, this is 48 weeks where we have more people applying for benefits than in any other week prior to this crisis. Week after week for 48 weeks, like one week was you know, impressive. Two weeks, okay, 48 weeks, this is extraordinary. Now, there are some data issues, there's some sort of bunching, but over time, this is a compelling statistic about just how much damage is still out there. While some businesses are opening, you know, restaurants reopen, but then they find out that people actually don't want to go out and eat uh, uh, eat dinner in the cold um, or eat inside during the pandemic. And then they shut back down and the people are back on the unemployment lines. So there's money out there to make sure that those unemployed folks get their benefits, which if this plan is not put into action in the next few weeks, those additional benefits for millions of those workers will start expiring. They won't get as much money. So that is urgent, it's important, and it's extremely well targeted. So we could go line by line. You do not have that, you know, all the hours in the day that it would take <laughs> a lot of details in here. But um, I just do want to stress that it's extremely well targeted. Well, and uh, to that extent, I'm a mom of a public school kid who's been out of school since March. Um, I think all of us are trying to figure out, you know, they tried to roll out something that was like kind of half-baked to try to get people back to school. But I think we all want 
every child back in school every day by the fall. What can mothers do in this current situation to actually help, you know, our schools reopen? Because I think all of us share that desire, right? Yeah, you know, that is a great question. Let me focus on a couple of things that might that are, you know, I'm an economist here, so I'm not the health expert. But from what I understand, the first thing is keep your kids safe, right? Yeah. So, you know, that parents have this enormous power to make sure that children are wearing their face masks as required when they go to school, that they're doing the things that they need and that everybody's following the rules, right? Setting out those norms for the kind of good behavior that we need to see. Um, and, you know, uh, it's it's good when you walk around town and you see mom and dad um, and the kids wearing face masks, but you notice if mom and dad aren't doing it, the kids don't do it as well. So I think that's thing one, because um, that's what's going to keep teachers safe and other school children safe. Um, thing two is to to um, to both be patient, but to understand that this requires resources. You know, one of the things that we saw out of the Great Recession was that because of the cutbacks right? When communities don't have any money and it's not spent, that lowers tax revenue for the states. States get a lot of their tax revenue from sales taxes and different kinds of taxes in the federal government. When their revenue fell, a lot of the cutbacks they made were in education, all sorts of education, primary, secondary, higher, secondary, higher education. And it wasn't until right before the pandemic that state and local government education had come back to its pre-pandemic but it's pre-Great Recession peak. You're right. So I think um, the other thing I would say is recognize as parents and as everyone that schools need resources to do the things they do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when there's that that local school bond that comes up on the next year's ballot, that seems like an important thing to really think seriously about because we can't, if we starve our schools of resources, they won't be able to do their jobs. I want to stay on school closures for a moment because you've focused on the relationship between inequality and economic growth and even wrote a book on the topic in 2019. So what do you see are the effects of the pandemic and these closures in public schools on exacerbating inequality and how is that going to affect our economic growth? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I'm a little obsessed with this question, and this is a very ugly set of trends. So, you know, we live in a country where inequality has been increasing for decades, really since the you know late 70s, early 1980s. But this pandemic has really uncovered the ways that inequality has made our society fragile and who is most vulnerable. Um, you know, folks have been calling this the K-shaped recovery. I often think that that stands for, you know, kicking some people down the ladder and other folks up the ladder. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is that um, on the one hand, folks at the top have done quite well, right? The stock markets have hit these highs, you know, stock market goes up and down any given day, but it's Mm -hmm. doing really well. Um, And if you have a job where you can telecommute and be safe, well, your chances of getting COVID as it turns out are smaller and less likely, you know, people who are able to, you know, keep safe, less likely, you know, lower death rates in these communities, disproportionately white communities, disproportionately higher income communities have been both safer from the virus and safer from the income shocks. And because of those, they've been saving a lot of money, right? Because folks at the top, they're not going on vacation, they're not eating out, they're not paying for dry cleaning, right? All of that adds up. At the other end, we actually see that while jobs have come back for those in the top, the top two thirds of the labor market, for those at the bottom third, you see this still this downward um, slope, that jobs have not come back nearly to the same extent. So you see fewer jobs on the one hand, 
On the other hand, so many workers in the bottom half of the economy have been in these essential workplaces where they are the delivery worker, they're the care with the childcare worker who doesn't, who's not getting the support they need. They are doing all, they're the, the retail clerk, the grocery clerk, right? These jobs where their lives have been more on the line over the past year, which of course we've then seen in the death rates, especially in communities of color, black Americans dying at much higher rates than white Americans. And, um, and all of this is compounded. So the, you can see the way the economic inequality is compounding health inequalities and in access in ways that are really damaging. Now, on the one hand, especially in a time when people aren't going out as much, it might be easy to ignore this. But this creates these real fragilities across our society, across our economy. And, um, and it means that things like opening schools may be just that much more important to those communities at the lower end of the income distribution where the challenges of doing so may be the hardest because they have the fewest resources. So and kind of connecting those dots, I think is really, really important. Well, and Heather, you raised such a good point because like when we could have been investing in our future, we didn't. We cut taxes for the very wealthiest among us. So now we're borrowing a lot of money. And so the money we're borrowing, who are we borrowing it from and how will we ever pay it back? Those are great questions. Um, Well, we're borrowing it from ourselves. Um, We're borrowing it from our friends and colleagues who have money who are investing in uh, T-bills and, of course, folks abroad that are buying treasury bills. Um, Here's the thing. The federal government is the only entity that has the capacity to deal with this crisis. This is why the government can actually float bonds, right? We give the federal government this power to borrow for moments like this. Now, the as you sort of, as you referred to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which gave massive, massive boondoggle tax cuts to those at the top, not good um, tax policy in terms of promoting economic efficiency and growth. We did not see any bang for the buck in this. That is the wrong kind of way to build up debt. And, you know, we need to be thinking about ways to recover that revenue. But this crisis, this is the moment where we do need to be taking on that debt. And interest rates are at historic lows. And let me be very clear that, um, you know, when you look at the long-term trend in interest rates, they spiked up in the 1980s, but then they slowly over time have been coming back down. There is... um, not a good reason at this moment to think that they would spike up anything like the 1980s. That was a policy decision that was made. Um, and they might go up a little bit, you know, as we borrow, but we can afford the cost of this. We'll be able to afford the debt payments. But the most important thing is we need to invest in the productive capacity of our country. And that means investing in our people and making sure that we put our economy on a sustainable path. That is the only way we're going to, I believe it was Barack Obama called it, win the future, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're only going to do that if we make those investments today. We can't, if we leave kids behind today, the workers of the future are not going to be the kinds of workers that are going to be able to propel our economy forward. Um, So that's just, it, it is so imperative that we not get stuck in this fear of making investments today. Well, as we look at what this this impact has on the everyday American, you talk about investing in our people. What does that mean? Oh, well, so, I mean, I think specifically with the rescue plan, it means things like making sure that we're supporting childcare workers, childcare centers, and um, giving people the 
the capacity to afford childcare in this moment. You know, you think about the fact that so many childcare centers are owned and operated by women, right? If they're a small business, maybe they're just like literally one woman in her in her rec room, right? Um, or, you know, even these smaller businesses, these are disproportionately owned by women and women of color. Um, let's make sure that those businesses can still thrive on the other side of that. And that's also an investment in tomorrow's tomorrow's workers, America's kids. I would say another really important investment is, you know, over the year, we've had to take a series of steps to make sure that people could stay in their homes, right? Um, we've uh, different communities at the federal level, you know, the uh, made it possible so that um, you don't have to pay your rent on time, or you don't have to pay your mortgage, but those bills are going to come due. And the rescue plan also includes funds to help people be able to afford their, their rent or their mortgage. That's super important because we know from really compelling research that it's very dislocating, not just for parents, but especially for children to be evicted or to have to move suddenly because of an economic crisis. You change school districts, you might lose that lesson plan that you were in that was like really helping a particular kid. So I think those are, those are just some of the things that we need to be doing. I want to highlight for our listeners that two of the three members of the Council of Economic Advisors are now women, including the chair. And with that said, can you speak to what different perspective you think that this brings to the council? Yeah, I'm trying to think the last time that was the case. Um, and it'll be our first, the first chair of the Council of Economic Advisors who is um, uh, Black. So it's a Black woman. So we're super excited about that as well. That's a, um, a step forward. And um, I'll also note that it's three labor economists. So right there, I think, you know, Joe Biden put his values front and center that he wanted to prioritize what was happening with working Americans. CC uh, Rouse and I have talked a lot about the care economy um, and the, the really important economic research underpinning the important things that we need to do to support this foundation of our economy. And you know, how, I mean, really 2020 showed us how important the care economy is. If you don't have care, people can't get to work. And if people can't get to work, you don't have an economy. I mean, it's really, it's quite frankly, it's that simple. And so starting from that insight and, you know, her and I have talked a lot about, you know, what is the sort of the overall infrastructure you need to make sure that families can thrive and they can get access to the care they need. So it's it's not just childcare, but it's long-term care, it's paid leave, it's um, making sure that people have the workplace flexibility and that we think about how our current labor standards and social insurance protections do and do not really uh, focus on the way that families live and work today. And so, I don't know how many other, you know, CAs were sitting around talking about this issue all the time, but certainly that's something that's been top of mind for us. Well, another element to this is that when you get to the level of the White House and you watch us interact with all of the different countries' economies around the world, you realize that we do this in two and four year cycles because of our political cycles and our elections. And it's it's actually kind of hurting us, right? Because we'll agree to something and then we pull out and then we agree to something. And so how do we actually change our long-term economic plans so that they aren't contingent on two or four year cycles? Is there any way we could separate that from the politics of the moment? Such a great question. Um, 
I would look to history for this, that you know, you've seen policies that have had a long-term effect, right? Think about the unemployment insurance system. That system was part of the Social Security Act of 1935. And um, it set in place a structure that said, okay, if you've lost your job through no fault of your own, we're gonna give you this social insurance. And it took a while for it to get set up, right? I mean, they set it up, but it didn't, it didn't pay out benefits like immediately. And the thing is, is that we still have that system. So you have to think about setting up things that are gonna last for generations. But you also need to be really careful about what you build into those. So for example, because we didn't have computers in the same way we do now, the unemployment insurance system has eligibility rules that are based on the fact that they couldn't get data on people's employment really quickly. And so the, um, the rules look back sort of over a period of time that goes, it's, it's kind of like, you know, maybe four to six months after your current employment, uh, because people had to, their employer had to write down on paper and send it into the state office, you know, uh, what somebody's employment patterns were. So you have to think about building systems that can stand the test of time and can be updated. But it's about building institutions and building institutions that can serve people over the long haul and that'll be popular. So that's where I start. Um, and those things are harder to undo. No. Uh, if, if you do go on that historical basis, you know, over the course of history, we've seen actually the government create jobs programs. Historically, is that something that is part of this particular plan? Are we actually, you know, when we talk about a bridge or anything like that, are those infrastructure uh, investments actually jobs directly to Americans? So that's a great question. Um, and I mean, I'll just note, actually, you know, what's interesting about the jobs question in terms of institution building in the times in American history when we've had jobs programs, they've been temporary and they haven't lasted, right? So you think about the Works Progress Administration or the Civilian Conservation Corp or even the CETA, I can't remember what that stood for in the 1970s. Those haven't uh, stood the test of time. Uh, certainly in the, um, in the rescue plan, there is, there, there is some money for some healthcare uh, first responders, healthcare uh, services in there that could be kind of, you know, will help some folks. But that's not, I think, really what you're talking about. The president has talked about a, a, some specific places in our economy where we need investments and where you could think of them as uh, boosting investments that can pull people into the labor force. So areas around healthcare in communities, uh, you think about the need for the contact tracing or you know, getting the vaccines out. These are ways to pull people in. There's been talk about jobs programs around climate, um, a climate core to, you know, we have this, this national crisis, like we can pull people in that way. Um, then there's also things that the president has talked about in terms of places where we need to expand capacity, long-term care, childcare. These are areas where there's an enormous amount of need. I think though, that the one thing that we need to be careful with all of this is that we need to make sure that we're thinking really smartly about the kinds of jobs that we're creating and the path that we're leaving. So the extent to which um, any of this is substituting for government jobs or jobs that should be permanent government jobs, we need to think long and hard about that. Does it make more sense to try to expand the budget to just create more childcare workers? Or do you want something that feels a little bit more temporary? Those are really important strategic decisions because it's gonna affect the quality of the job and how long that program lasts and the quality of the services that people will get. There's another strategic decision I wanna ask you about, and that's 
Many people in this country are wrestling with massive student loan debt, and I know the Biden White House is considering forgiveness. How will canceling student loans be good for the economy? Well, there's a number of different ways that this is good for the economy. Let's just start from, the, I'm going to start with a little story here, um, and I'm going to date myself. But um, in 1988, <laughs> when I was applying for college, I remember distinctly, I could describe exactly where I was standing in the kitchen, my mother telling me, gosh, you know, I worked all summer and I saved up enough money to afford my tuition at the, um, at the state university in Washington state uh, that she went to. And I remember looking at her back then and just being like, that is impossible. Like that is not possible for me. And I look at younger kids today and it's, it's, it's quadruply impossible. So one thing that student loan debt does is it, I mean, it burdens children, um, you know, as they become adults, right? It makes it harder to buy a home, makes it harder to afford high quality childcare, right? Mm -hmm. The people with student debt are also the people that often have little kids, but it, it also is, is the result of a series of decisions that we've made in terms of how we fund higher education. We've chosen to not give people grants. We've chosen to give more students loans, and then we've saddled them with this debt. And so I think we need to really think about how we are financing higher ed, and then think about well, what can we do for those those you know adults out there in the workforce now that are out you know out there postgraduate who have this debt. And then let me say one other thing. The other thing about student debt is that there's so many people who took on debt who didn't graduate. And that is a national tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially you think about the people that took on debt from a for-profit school or something where it just, it didn't, it didn't work out. It wasn't the educational investment that you wanted them to make. Those folks, especially, I think are um, uh, that burden that hasn't actually increased their uh, uh, capacity in the labor force. I think it's really important that we think about what we can do to support and help them. Most certainly. And Heather, you talked a little bit about this earlier. And one of the other tragedies in this situation is that racial disparities are at the largest they've ever been in recent history. From life expectancy to job loss, it's really stark. How is the administration looking at economic recovery from a racial justice and economic equality lens? Well, I can say that on the in the uh, in the conversations I'm in on, this is this is front and center in so many different ways. And you can see it throughout the rescue plan. You can also see it throughout the series of executive orders that the president has already laid out. Um, and you can also hear it in his voice when he talks about these issues, how important it is. And that to me has been, um, it's a value that I think is really important. Uh, so I have, I've appreciated hearing that directly from him. So I often start by thinking about what are some of the basics. We have this enormous gap. It's by wealth, it's by income, it's in terms of job access, and it's by health, right? So you have all these different layers. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about racial justice across all of them. So, um, you know, one basic place is the minimum wage, right? We know that um, people that earn the minimum wage and earn what um, the wages that would be increased if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, those are disproportionately people of color. An easy way to give them all a raise would be to pass an increase in the minimum wage. That's one thing we could do. I mean, I will go back to schools because that is one of the places where we are seeing the role of the pandemic. Now, to take one step back, to be crystal clear, 
we know that death rates have been higher in black communities and that's something mm-hmm. that we need to think about. Um, the administration has already been working hard to make sure the vaccines get out there in all communities and that we deal with the myth that this is, uh, you know, people that are uh, anxious about taking the vaccine. Um, that That is really important. But Above and beyond that, making sure that the next generation is getting back into school, especially in communities where their parents may not have the ability to pay for tutors or may not be able to telecommute and children may be home alone or not don't have access to the internet or all the things they need. Opening schools, I think, is really important for racial equity and is certainly one of the reasons why this has been so prioritized by the administration. Um, I think of other things too, like paid leave. You know, there was some research done last year that showed that the extensions that we did of giving uh, more workers paid sick days led to um, significant fewer transmissions of the coronavirus. And so for those folks that had to go to work because they were essential workers, disproportionately workers of color, Mm -hmm. having access to paid leave could have made the difference between life and death right? Being able to say, I I need to take the day off. I I might be sick or I am sick or I've got a cough. And rather than go in and infect all of my colleagues, just give me the day off to stay home and not lose my pay or my job. So um, I think you have to think about all of the the intersections of those inequalities, mm-hmm. but um, those are just a few of the places that that I see that commitment playing its way out. But there's there's a lot of others. We're looking at data too. So, but that's less and there were tax incentives for small businesses for paid leave. And so, so much, um, you know, I, I know a lot of us know that Americans feel, some of them feel like, you know, we're, we're drowning. So I guess uh, in closing, we just want to ask, you know, when is this help coming? What can we do to help this? And, you know, what is the opportunity here if we can come together and um, overcome this crisis? When will this be over? I would say <laughs> a few I think things. we're all thinking that. Yeah. Um, it's exciting to see Congress moving on the American Rescue Plan. And so I think thing one is that they have to, they've got to finish their negotiations and put it on the president's desk in a way that he can sign. So that is the most important. We've got to get that money out to those communities. But the second thing is just to, you know, it requires all of us doing everything we can to contain the virus that, that's on all of us to take the actions that we need to take, get your shots, you know, use your protective gear and the like. Um, and to to really, you know, do what we need to do to follow the science on this and to make sure that we're listening to the experts who can tell us, you know, uh, how we can get through this together, but know that our economy will come back if we don't let it drown in the meantime. We Mm. need to, to use your metaphor, we need to hand it that lifeline um, in the meantime, and we can't afford to wait. Yeah, no, we're, we're so grateful to you, Heather, and we will be doing everything we can to support getting this package through so we can get help to Americans. Thank you, Heather Boucher. We enjoyed so much talking with you and getting the expert opinion from the Council of Economic Advisors. This was a delight. Um, you all are just, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And also thank you for doing this podcast. It's really fantastic. And and I appreciate you all. So thanks. Oh, we oh appreciate gosh. you. We do. Thank you for your time today. <laughs> I appreciate so much that Heather came on and gave us just the honest, unfiltered, 
answers to the questions, even when this legislation is still pending. So I think what we need all of our listeners to know is that you can call your members of Congress. You can get involved by just reaching out to them and making sure that they are passing this relief. You can also when you're concerned about schools, reach out to your school board members so that you are trying to help them and make sure that they have the help that they need to get our schools reopened. So I hope that she gave you all the information. I know I certainly found it very insightful of all of the various things that they're looking at to get us back open and going again. That's right, because, you know, she she made a point to say they're ready to cut the checks. They already have the plan going, but we need to get this over the line in Congress. So that's where we all come in. Absolutely. And we can all take those steps in calling and advocating for ourselves and for Americans all around us. As we shift gears to our POTUS of the Week, um, today marks a really solemn day in that it's the one-year anniversary of the tragic death of Ahmad Aubrey, and our POTUS goes to his mother, Miss Wanda Cooper-Jones. Um, she has continued to advocate tirelessly for her son and for all others who are victims of unnecessary violence at the hands of police or others. In Ahmad's case, it was not the police, but unfortunately it was the police who tried to cover up his murder. And today she filed a civil suit in the conspiracy to protect his murderer. So our hearts go out to her and we think about him and honor his memory. And our shout out today goes to Linda Thomas Greenfield, who is headed to the UN as the US ambassador. It is really more important than ever to have US leadership around the globe as we work for a more fair and more just world. So really excited to see Linda Thomas Greenfield um, go be US ambassador to the UN. Next week, we are kicking off Women's History Month, and we're really excited to bring you a series of interviews with incredible women. Uh, we'll keep them a secret for now, but stay tuned for next week. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We always read them, and we appreciate your support.